Well, if you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4, page 710 in the Church Bibles, if that would be some help to you. In just a moment or two, we're going to begin reading in verse 26 of chapter 4 of the Gospel of Mark. Just by way of reminder, remember we've been working verse by verse through this Gospel, and here we are today in verse 26. Okay, let's hear the word of the Lord. He, and this is Jesus, Jesus also said, This is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. Again, he said, What shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest seed you plant in the ground. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants, with such big branches that the birds of the air can perch in its shade. With many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. But when he was alone with his own disciples... He explained everything. And just by way of my own encouragement, I'm going to read just a short passage from Isaiah 11. This is a prophecy about Jesus. Um, It says, this is verse 3, He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decision for the poor of the earth. Amen. All right, let's bow together and pray. Lord, we are weak and we are frail and, and are helpless in the storm. Surround us with your angels and hold us in your arms. Our cold and ruthless enemy, his pleasure is our harm. Rise up, O Lord, and he will flee before the sovereign God. Father, we ask you that you would please teach us to trust in the power of your word, which means, Father, that we are dependent on you in our listening and our learning, and I am completely dependent on you in my speaking and in my preaching. Therefore, in this whole occasion, and we really mean it, Father, in this whole occasion, we find ourselves completely dependent on you. So please bring glory to your name, bring Christ before us all, and please, God, um, have mercy on us now, for Jesus' sake. Amen. If your Bible's open, you'll see verse 26. This is what the kingdom of God is like. Okay, that's... This is the lesson which Jesus is setting plainly before his listeners. This is, the, this is what the kingdom of God is like. This is the definitive, if you would, talk. In other words, in this way is God's kingdom. And who would know better to explain the kingdom than the king of the kingdom? Which means, as you would suspect, this lesson is important. It's important because he's just told his followers, if your Bible's open, you'll see this in verse 21, he just told them that if they have ears, they need to listen carefully to what he's preaching in order that they would be able to consider carefully what they're hearing because the the principle here is measure for measure, right? This is the principle that Jesus is laying down. With the measure you listen and apply to his instruction is how it will be measured back to you as you obey his instruction. And as the nature of Jesus is, as you obey, even more will be given. 
And this idea then of applying what you learn, of reducing the gap between the proclamation of Christ and a, person, a person's conformity to Christ as they live in and for the kingdom is what Jesus has in mind here. As this, right? This is going to reveal in time, albeit a short time for some, or it could be a long, long time for others as we learn in the parable of the soil. soils. Where, where does a person's true allegiance lies? Right? With Jesus, honestly, time will tell. Now, this idea of paying attention then to the kingdom of God and to the um, teaching of Jesus Christ is crucial because as Jesus tells us this, and you might just want to flip back a page or two to chapter 1, verse 15, because Jesus' initial um, sermons here, if you would, is this. The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. So immediately out of the gate, Jesus is preaching the kingdom. And so what had happened, what those who were his listeners, what they had thought about the kingdom of God and what it would be like was wrong. And it was being challenged then by what Jesus was preaching, what the kingdom of God was like, which was right. So if a person in that context, if they did not listen carefully, and if they did not understand the kingdom Jesus was proclaiming, um, then as you would suspect, they would approach it with either only human lines of thought or what they were always told. And they define the kingdom then as they wish to define the kingdom. And as they see the kingdom of God in Jesus Christ and see the kingdom that Jesus is describing, and they're not used to that, they don't believe that, then you can imagine what could happen. They might just jump ship and say this whole Jesus thing isn't really worth it. Or they might try to change what Jesus is saying because, quote, it doesn't seem like it's working, right? Because the whole thing is very small and the whole thing seems like a bloody waste of time and energy. And besides, if Jesus says he's the king in this kingdom, a king is supposed to have a crown. Jesus doesn't have a crown. And a king is supposed to have a palace. Jesus doesn't have a palace. And a king is supposed to have this significant entourage around him. And Jesus has a bunch of nobodies around him not very impressive king of your quote kingdom so as we've been saying it would only be by means of faith of believing in jesus's words would you ever be able to say there he is as i saw jesus come down the road there he is that's the king of the universe that's the king of the world that's the kingdom way now loved ones i want you to think with me because we're so used to this, sometimes we miss the obvious. Weakness, irrelevance, suffering, and the idea that this whole Jesus thing is not going to go anywhere was without a doubt what characterizes earthly ministry. I want you to think with me. Jesus' last public act in his earthly ministry is that he was crucified naked as a common criminal between two thieves having been deserted by nearly all his disciples, betrayed by one, denied by an, another. I mean, not very kingly. If it was an hour day, some might have said, well, Jesus, you need to go back to leadership class because that's not how you end well. And so this would have caught so many completely off guard, not only then, but also now. So when you read your Bible and think carefully, it seems that there's no chance at all that this whole kingdom of God thing is ever going to get off the ground, right? How in the world is Jesus ever going to reign? Because at every turn, the odds are incredibly stacked against him. Well, how so? Well, at least this. 
Mark doesn't tell us about the birth of Jesus. Still having thought about his death, let's think about his birth. Jesus is born into this world in poverty. No riches, no servant, no power. In his very early years, he's on the run as a madman king wants little Jesus dead. Somehow he makes it through all that. And he begins his earthly ministry. And the crowds are fickle and they are faithless, right? They like the dinner. They like the show. But they don't like the gospel. So much unbelief. So much opposition sets the ministry paces for him. Unbelief because most of the religious people and the religious establishment are not repenting and they're not believing, but tax collectors are, little hussies are, wine-bibbers are repenting and believing. Is that really the kingdom? And when it comes to opposition towards the ministry of Jesus, it's so bad. If your Bible's open, chapter 3, verse 6, the Pharisees and the Herodians, the uh, ruling authorities, begin to plot how they might kill Jesus. Now, that's incredible. A king wants him dead near the beginning of his life, and the ruling class want him dead near the beginning of his ministry. Still, Jesus goes on. The kingdom goes on. He picks his ministry team to change the world. And he chooses a team made up of unlearned men. Some of those guys have horrible reputations. And chapter 3, verse 19, Jesus picks a Judas who will betray him. And you would think that after all this trouble, surely his own family would support him. Chapter 3, verse 21, his family line of thinking at that time was what? He is out of his mind. So clearly, uh, in the opening chapters of Mark, there is this uh, clear misunderstanding of Jesus and the kingdom. And there is this fierce opposition to Jesus and the kingdom by no less than religious people and his own family. Now, what is Jesus' response to all this? Right? What is his response? Opposition, unbelief. Chapter 4, verse 33, do you see it there? He told stories to them. And with such, or excuse me, and with many such parables, he spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. Now, are you listening carefully? Death is the tone of his life. His opposition wants him dead. His family thinks he's nuts. The disciples that he chose would never make the list of best of, best of lists, if you would, in Forbes magazine. And most of his listeners remain in unbelief. And on a human level, they, they think the whole thing is not even going get to get off the ground. And Jesus' kingdom building plan then with all that stuff going on is to keep doing what he was told to do Keep, if you would, scattering seed. Chapter 1, verse 38 of Mark's gospel. Let us go to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. Preach the word. In season, out of season. When people are ready, listeners, and when they are not. That's the kingdom plan. That's the plan. And so this, as we'll see, is what the kingdom of God is like. In this manner is the kingdom. Which is probably why, if you just take a few steps back from chapter 4, it's probably why Mark is so word, or if you like, seed-centered. Do you see this? Chapter 4, verses 1 to 20, seed is being scattered. Regardless of so much unbelief, the seed is the word of God. Verse 21 and 20, through 25 of chapter 4. We better listen carefully as that seed, as the word of God is sown, then 
verse 26 through 29, this is how the seed grows. Then verse 30 through 34, careful now. Don't you make quick judgments. Yeah, the seed starts small, but massive growth is coming. And loved ones, it is only with that background information can we honestly understand the two parables that Jesus puts before us this morning. If you just try to jump into the text, if you would, parachute into it and take those two stories out and rip them out of context, you'll make a bloody hash of the whole thing. This is what the kingdom of God is like. This is what Jesus says. Number one, the seed is scattered. Verse 26, a man scatters seed on the ground. The seed is, of course, the word of God faithfully preached. The word of God faithfully preached is the preaching of Jesus Christ. It is the preaching of the gospel. It is when your talk relies on the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's humbling to man for sure, but it's exalting to Jesus Christ. So it's not by accident. That after Mark writes on those who want to murder Jesus, right? Chapter 3, verse 6, that right after that, we find Jesus soon after, if you would, he chooses his disciples to make sure what? That the preaching ministry of Jesus will continue on in the lives of these men after he goes to the cross. Why is that, Jesus? Because this is what the kingdom of God is like. It's the scattering of the seed. It is the preaching of the word of God. If there is no seed scattered, there can be no hope of a harvest. If there's no seed scattered, I don't care how many good deeds we do, there is no hope of harvest. So the sower sows the seed. He has done the thing which he must do. Then we read in verse 27, see it there, in the dailiness of life, night and day, sleep, awake, the seed sprouts, the seed grows, though he, the sower, does not know how. That takes us to our second point, right? First, the seed is scattered. It's the preaching of the word, the preaching of Christ. Second point, grace is active. Again, the seed sprouts, the seed grows, and you see that there um, at the end of verse 27 and at the beginning of verse 28, though he does not know how. Verse 28, all by itself. Some translations say without visible cause. By itself, the seed grows. All to make a real clear point that the seed which is scattered by the sower grows not because of the sower. Get that? Not because of the sower. The seed, the faithful teaching of the Bible, which the sower, the preacher, if you would, or the teacher scatters, only grows because of God's grace. Now, let's think through this. Let's first think in terms of agricultural and medical. First, agricultural. The farmer does their thing. He plants, he waters, he weeds, he fertilizes. The surgeon does their thing. Cut open, take out, put in, cap over, replace... And then they sew the body back up. Both are relying on God to make either the seed grow or the body to get better in this way. In the case of the farmer, they're relying on the germination process, which is inherent in creation. They didn't create the process. They just rely on the process. In the case of the surgeon, they are relying on the recuperative, healing, and restorative properties of the body, which work of themselves, again, inherent in creation. It would be the height of arrogance for a farmer to take credit for germination and for a surgeon to take credit for the human body's natural restorative process. So this is common grace. 
seed growing, body repairing. Both are only automatic because of God's grace. Because of God's grace. And so, if you would, what parent would give themselves credit for the birth of their child? What pastor would give themselves credit for their converts? Because, you know, it's so easy to forget just on a common level that the only reason why I can go, and the only reason why I can go, is because of God. 1 Corinthians 4, what do you have that you didn't receive? It's a rhetorical question. Nothing, nothing, absolutely nothing. So what you need to know is what is true agriculturally and what is true medicinally is, if you would, true theologically. Here in the parable, Jesus is frankly explaining amazing grace. The seed is scattered. The word is preached. It doesn't seem like anything is going to happen, but it grows. Verse 27b, though the sower does not know how. So in Jesus' day, the, the sower would have a seed bag attached around his neck. They would grab the seed and they essentially would just throw it out. And if you could take a picture of the seed going to the ground, and you didn't know better, you'd look at the picture and say, wow, that's a waste of seed. <laughs> Hits the ground, nothing's happening. What a waste, right? You go to bed, maybe you um, get some water or something like that, and what happens? Nothing still. But in time, Jesus says, it becomes something. And now, it is, I think this is right, the, the corn is high as an elephant's eye. Now there's something. And the sower has contributed nothing to the germination process of the seed. The sower's significance thus far is only that he just scatters this, the seed. Now, loved ones, that takes my mind, it took my mind back to immediately to 1 Corinthians 3 and when we are learning through this book. Remember that church was a pride-filled church? And one of the ways we knew they were a pride-filled church is they loved to make judgments on everyone and everything, which Paul says was actually a sign of their immaturity. And so the Paul, who was sent by Jesus Christ to the church, he makes this carefully constructed argument of how that they're constantly making judgments on everyone and everything, which caused division, because what was happening is individual preference and not Jesus' truth was serving uh, as the basis of how they decided things. And Paul says, oh my gosh, guys, you're so worldly and you're so childish. It's actually stunting your Christian growth. So one group said we love Apollos. One group said we love Paul. Paul's like, listen carefully. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5. We are only servants, doulos. We're lower level galley slaves. Verse 6, I planted the seed. Apollos watered it. But, as we said last week, only God makes it grow. So neither the waterer or the planter is anything, but only God who makes things grow. So Paul says, guys, don't think you're so wise that you can judge everything with only your eyes. Verse 18 of chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, the standard of this world, that's what it is. What, what did Eve in, in the garden? She looked with her eyes at the fruit and it was pleasing to the eye. What does 1 John say is loving this world? Lusting with what we See, and therefore Paul goes on and says, don't judge anything before it's appointed time. Okay, Paul, when is that? 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, wait until the Lord comes. He'll bring everything to light. Now, I think we know that by nature, we love to judge everything. 
By nature, we think that we can actually make the grass grow. We're just going to get this right. We're going to get this right and do this this way. And we're going to make the grass grow. And you know what? I don't like to brag, but, you know, I think I can actually see the grass grow. I'm just going to look at it and I can see the grass grow. I was first service, I said, I'm pretty sure my kids would say that. The little liars. Right? You can't see the grass grow. I mean, if you can put a camera to it, I get that. But you can't observe what is happening is the point here with your naked eye. We can't see grass growing with the naked eye. Verse 27, you, don't, you know not how it grows. Verse 28, all by itself. So what this parable does in part is it stops the chest pounding. And it stops the judging. And it stops us thinking, oh, we did X and we did Y and we did Z. Hoo-hoo! Here it comes. Jesus, this is what the kingdom of God is like. This is how Christ comes to reign in a person's heart. How he comes to forgive people and cleanse people and renew and change people. The seed is scattered. In the beginnings of faith, it may then appear to everyone on the outside that there's nothing happening to that person or that group. Indeed, the germination process may seem like it's going to take forever for growth to reveal itself. But, verse 28 again, all by itself, without visible cause, the soil produces grain. And though it comes in stages, right? That's the second part there, verse 28. Yeah, it might come in stages. It does come in stages, but it does come. So we dare not despise small beginnings. Patience is called for here. We dare not trust in our methods. Because if it's our methods then we can boast. If there's grace, then we only boast in the Lord. We just scatter the seed, for God is the only one who makes things grow. You remember Jesus was talking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, and he was saying this kind of stuff about being born again, and Jesus says to Nicodemus, you should know this. You're Israel's teacher. You should know this. And then he says, the, explaining salvation, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. I'm not sure if you know how Charles Spurgeon became a Christian. Charles Spurgeon was called the prince of the preachers. He lived in the 19th century. He's just, he's, if you can say, you know, he's one of the best. And yeah, he's, you know, one of the best. He preached, he preached to thousands of people in Metropolitan Tabernacle. I think he started preaching ministry somewhere around 18, 19 years old. And I just want to read to you how he came to Christ. One Sunday morning, God sent a snowstorm. While I was going to a certain place of worship, I turned down a side street and came to a little primitive Methodist church. In that chapel, there may have been a dozen or 15 people. I had heard of the primitive Methodists, how they sang so loudly that they made people's headaches, but it didn't matter to me. The minister did not come in that morning. He was snowed up, I suppose. At last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker, a tailor, or something of that sort, went up to the pulpit to preach. Now, it is well that preachers be instructed, but this man was really stupid. (laughs) He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. The text was, Look unto me, and ye be saved, all the ends of the earth, Isaiah 45 and 22. He did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. There was, I thought, a glimmer of hope for me in that text. The preacher began like this, and just have to read it the way he wrote it. This is a very simple text indeed. It it says, look, 
Now look and don't take a deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It's just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool and yet you can look. A man need not be worth a thousand a year to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But then the text says, look unto me. Ah, he said in broad Essex. Many are ye are looking to yourselves. But it's no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. No, but Jesus Christ says, look unto me. Look to Christ, the text says. Look unto me. Then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me. I am a sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me. I am a hanging on the cross. Look unto me. I am a dead and buried. Look unto me. I am a rising again. Look unto me. I am ascending to heaven. Look unto me. I'm sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner. Look unto me. Look unto me. When he had managed to spin out about 10 minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. Then he looked at me under the gallery. And I dare say, with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. Just fixing his eyes on me as if he knew all my, all my heart, he said, Young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did. But I had not been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance before. However, it was a good blow. Struck right home. He continued, and you will always be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment you'll be saved. Then lifting up his hands, he shouted, as only a primitive Methodist could do, young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but look and live. I saw at once the way of salvation. I know not what else he said. I did not take much notice of it. I was was so possessed with that one thought. I've been waiting to do 50 things, but when I heard that word look, with, with that, what a charming word it seemed to me. There and then the cloud was gone, the darkness had rolled away, and that moment I saw the sun. And I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith which looks alone to Him. Oh, that somebody had told me this before. Trust Christ and you will be saved. Now, Thank you for your patience in me reading that. But this is why I wanted you to hear that. You know, ironic, isn't it? One of the best preachers, if you can say that, this world will ever know. Converted in some back alley church with a handful of people present and a lay minister. Right? Not the real guy. The lay minister scattering the seed. Scattering the seed. And when our work is done, you see that verse 29? When we are ripe and ready, the harvester comes and he says to us, it's time to go home. And we go home. We go home only by his grace. Number one, the seed is scattered. Number two, grace is active. Finally, we have this very familiar parable. Uh, Last point, small is eventually large. Now remember our heading. This is what the kingdom of God is like. So this parable, which begins in verse 30, is a parable of contrast, right? The contrast is how the kingdom is initially small and then what it will become ultimately large. So again, when the kingdom comes at first, it's no consequence. But ultimately, the impressive nature of the kingdom is fully revealed. So you can see this in verse 31, from the smallest of seeds to the largest of shrubs. And in this parable, the emphasis is not on the process of how it gets there, as in the previous parable, but on the dramatic change 
which is brought only by the power of God. This is the principle. Nothing ever grows unless it dies. That's 1 Corinthians 15. That's John chapter 12. A seed falls to the ground, and unless it dies, or when it dies, out of its death comes all this life by the power of God. It's in the conversion. It's in the Christian's life. It's in the kingdom. Nothing ever grows until it dies. That's the principle. So this little seed, okay? So I needed some help here. 700 mustard seeds makes up a gram. I needed more help. That's about a quarter of a teaspoon. I needed a little more help. 14 grams make up a half an ounce. There's about 10,000 mustard seeds and a half an ounce. In other words, the seed is really, really small. And if you looked at the soil, you couldn't tell it was there. And one of the reasons why Jesus mentions birds is because birds in that area, they liked eating mustard seeds because they were so small. So I have a favorite cartoon when I was a kid, two birds talking to each other. They're, they're wanting to get grasshoppers, not mustard seeds. And so the one bird says to the other bird, let's go to Guadalajara because that's where all the stupid grasshoppers live. So they fly off to grass, Guadalajara to eat their grasshoppers. So, so maybe the two birds are talking, right? And so maybe they're like, man, these mustard seeds are great. And they fly away and they come back and all of a sudden there's this like little bush there. And time goes and it gets bigger and bigger and nine, ten feet tall, three feet wide, four feet in some cases. And the birds might have said, well, I guess we missed a seed. <laughs> Look at it now. Now we can shelter in its shade. How did that happen? This is what the kingdom of God is like. So don't take your eye off the ball. Because if you take your eye off the ball, suddenly the parable will become either whatever you want it to become, or you just judge everything by appearance. And you might abandon something, which is going to be wonderful and massive. Have you ever heard of a parent looking at the birth of their child right out of the mother's womb? And looking at, at all its helplessness and just saying, well, I guess he's not going to amount to much. Wouldn't it be silly if you're at a wedding and here's the lovely couple and somebody sitting in the seats, give a little nudge, they won't make it past year two. That's what we do by nature. That's why I read Isaiah chapter 11 and that beautiful prophecy of Jesus Christ. He doesn't look and decide with his eyes but with righteousness and justice, principle thinking. This is what the kingdom of God is like. How does it start? A seed planted, very tiny. Initially, it doesn't seem like much, but ultimately the seed triumphs. It grows, and that is what's being taught. Now, I want you to bear with me and we'll be done. Throughout, throughout all of time to this point, and past this point here, is the rise and fall of so many earthly kingdoms. A kingdom will come into the scene of history and it seems like it never is ever going to end. Babylon, Medo-Persian, Greek, Roman Empire, the British Empire, Nazi Germany. They are so powerful. There is just no way. They're going to keep going on forever and ever and ever. And so what happens is people get brave. 
And they say, you know, this whole Christianity thing, maybe it's not really anything. Thomas Paine, Huxley, Voltaire, these men who predicted the end of Christianity are worse. They say it's, it's, it's a whole lot more than just Christianity. And by the way, we're much smarter now. and We see things better than they saw things back then. And we just know better. We are way past all this Jesus stuff and the creator God who is sovereignly ruling over the affairs of men and uh, savior of the world. What do I need saving from? My sins? I mean, have you seen me? I'm not like ISIS. I'm not like those people over there. And out of all that mess that's there, what's happening? Out of very small beginnings, the seed scattered in northern India. The seed is scattered in Uzbekistan. The seed is scattered in Itasca County. Out of these very small beginnings, in all kinds of places all over the world, the seed is just not going away. And the very people who said you can get rid of Christianity has, has either been crushed by the judgment of God or they have come to find refuge in the very kingdom they oppose. Saul of Tarsus is the best example, right? He was ready to bring Christianity down to its knees. And now he finds shelter in the very kingdom he opposed. So you say, okay, what possible relevance would this be to the first readers of Mark's gospel? This is what you need to know. The, the readers of Mark's gospel were living under the oppression of Rome. They, they were not a rural congregation in Cohasset. They were, they were not enjoying the freedoms that we have at this point in our history. No, they were living in an age and stage when it seemed like the forces of the world were marching against them and they were winning and Christianity wasn't even going to make it out of the second century. So where do we find them worshiping on the Lord's Day? Well, they're in their little catacombs, burial chambers. And what are they doing in there? Well, they're scattering the seed. They're scattering the seed. And so from a human's perspective, the kingdom of God looks like it's on his last leg. And then they might have said, you know what, let's read Mark's letter. And they huddle around the Bible, if you would, with a little bit of light. Hey, everybody, look, it's going to be okay. This is what the kingdom of God is like. It starts out tiny. It's insignificant. The whole thing seems like nothing's going to happen. But actually, in all that, God is going to accomplish his purposes. And what an encouragement that might have been to them. And it should be to us. And think about this. Think about our Christian brothers in Afghanistan and sisters. I read this this week that... One of the ways they're able to identify themselves as Christian in public places in a safe way is by either the way they hold hands or the way they shake hands. And so I could just imagine them walking down the street, holding hands or shaking hands, telling each other without saying a word, the kingdom has come. God's going to accomplish his purposes. So let's rejoice in that truth. It's funny, isn't it? If you came into here in the context of, I'm just going to make this all personal, probably be disappointed. Didn't tell you what to do. Didn't tell you how to get better. Didn't say, try this, do that, do this. This is about the kingdom. This is communal. This is about our brothers and sisters in other places. And this is about the people here now. What do we do? Well, we scatter the seed. Sunday by Sunday, yeah. Sunday by Sunday, through the week, yeah, through the week. What does God do? Well, he makes the thing grow. And he's going to accomplish his purposes. So there's coming a day when the kingdom will come in all its fullness and the sower 
Jesus, if you would, will be the reaper of the harvest. And there'll be no no shelter from Jesus, but there is shelter to Jesus. So we need not run in fear of Jesus, but run in love and in faith to Jesus. Now, I picked out this hymn to close the sermon with. It's the church's one foundation, and it's the third verse, and it's speaking of the church. Amid toil and tribulation and the tumult of her war, she waits the consummation of peace forevermore till with the vision glorious her longing eyes are blessed and the church victorious. Do you know this one? Shall be the church at rest. Why can we rest? Because God's the only one that makes things grow. And we need to get that in us. Let's pray. Wonderful job listening today. Thank you for your attention. Well, Father, we thank you for the privilege of being able to sing your praise this morning. And we thank you for the truth that we sang and the things that we prayed and the certainty of a perfect answer. And we certainly thank you for the word being preached. What a comforting word, especially if you're thick in the battle and you care about the the seed and you care about the soil. And so we take great comfort in this certainty that, yeah, we got to get the seed out, but you're the only one that can make things grow. So we would not trust in our methods. We would trust in our Savior. And we would know, God, that you can do exceedingly and abundantly above all that we ask or even think. And so we pray to that in now, God, with great assurance. And uh, it's a beautiful day out there. So I pray that those of us who have time to enjoy it would be given that grace, peace and rest in the evening hour, and great joy as we wake up on a Monday morning ready to do battle in all the different places you put us. Thank you, God, for your deep, deep love. Thank you for the seed. Thank you for amazing grace. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.